UnderTheHorse.com's Ask the Vet live tonight, September 18th. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson. I'm digital editor of TheHorse.com. And tonight, our topic is Equine Cushing's Disease, or PPID. We're sponsored for free tonight by Boehringer Ingelheim, and we're joined by Dr. Nicholas Frank of Tufts University and Dr. Marion Little of Boehringer Ingelheim. Good evening, doctors. Good evening. Good evening. Hello. Uh, Dr. Frank, you're a professor of large animal internal medicine and the chair of the Department of Clinical Sciences at Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. And Dr. Little is the equine, uh, field equine professional services vet for Boehringer. Um, and we're here tonight to answer the uh, huge quantity of questions that we received about Cushing's. We're going to do the, the best we can. And I know I say this every time we received hundreds of questions. We received hundreds times many, many more questions on Cushing's. <laughs> this is a really, really popular um, problem that, that people are dealing with. Um, I want to ask that anyone who's listening, if you have a question that you want to send to us live, you can put it in that box on your console, on your web browser. We're going to try to get started and move about 15 minutes in before we start uh, taking your live questions, though. So uh, just a little bit of patience as we move forward. We're going to be talking about our clinical signs, diagnosis, and care of our horses with Cushing's. And I just coincidentally... I had a horse that I was taking care of um, in a herd before I worked for the horse uh, that just was put down after having Cushing's for about five years. And so it's very close to me. Our news editor, who is also on the line, and she'll be the one who's corresponding with the audience, she has a miniature horse at home that has Cushing's. And then, uh, Dr. Frank, can you tell us a little bit about your personal experience with this disease? I can. First of all, thank you for the opportunity uh, to uh, talk about this disease, this incredibly important disease of uh, middle-aged and older horses. Um, in addition to my clinical work, I obviously um, have had contact with many dedicated owners of horses with Cushing's, uh, but I also have a pony at home who suffers from this uh, disorder, uh, about 25 years of age now, Shetland pony owned by our two boys at home. And uh, we are managing this uh, disease along with lots of other people and have uh, come across our own uh, challenges as we uh, get this uh, problem under control. Okay. And Dr. Little, uh, besides your role uh, with Boehringer, do you have any personal experience with, with Cushing's horses? I sure do. Outside of my practice experience, I too owned the Shetland Pony growing up, and later on I, I owned a Morgan Tennessee Walking Horse Cross that uh, was always an easy keeper, and he eventually developed um, a series of recurrent infections and chronic laminitis, and I ended up having to euthanize him in 2007. I currently have a very advanced uh, PPID or Cushing's horse here at home. Okay. Yeah, so this is something that we as horse owners really do come across often or frequently. It feels that way, at least, when, when you're managing one. And so I think that's why we receive so many questions. So I want to start with Dr. Frank tonight. We have a question from Catherine, and she's in uh, San Juan Capistrano, and she wants to know what causes Cushing's and why does it seem so prevalent in our horses? 
Okay, Michelle, I'm going to try and keep this as short as possible. Um, but <laughs> yeah. this is a disorder that you know is better referred to as pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction. And the word dysfunction, I think, is is better to start with because this is a progressive disorder, and it starts with dysfunction of this pituitary gland. And the pituitary gland at the base of the brain sends out a number of different hormones and as the horse gets older and develops this uh, condition we see that a particular region of the pituitary gland the pars intermedia starts to send out more hormones and and it is really a collection of hormones that are sent out and that affects the horse in many different ways we also call this Cushing's disease because there's an element of this that includes an increase in the amount of cortisol and the amount of uh, stress hormones in the body. It's not as straightforward as just high cortisol concentrations all, all the time, but it certainly has this underlying problem um, of an increase in the stress hormones in the body. So it is a dysfunction that at the start that then develops over time into a small tumor or multiple small tumors within this region of the pituitary gland. And the key part of this is they, they are active tumors. So they are actually sending out hormone all the time and too much hormone. So that's what's causing the signs that we're seeing in the animals. Why is it so common? It really is so common because a lot of this uh, goes hand in hand with aging changes that over time that uh, this region of the pituitary gland is controlled by some nerves that basically degenerate over time and in some horses they degenerate faster and those are the ones that we see the disease in as the horse gets older the risk of it getting uh, PPID increases so the older the horse is the more likely it's going to be until we get up to about a third of old horses um, having a problem with Cushing's and those are the really the ones that are up in their 20s and 30s when they get to that age you can expect about one in three horses uh, to be suffering from this problem. Uh, so that just probability-wise is why we feel like we see this so often. Um, so how, does this does PPID make our horses more susceptible to other health problems? It, it does. It's really um, one of the components of this disorder is that it uh, weakens the immune system and uh, that makes uh, white blood cells and other uh, immune uh, cells in our body, in the horse's body, not as effective as they should be. So those white blood cells are needed to fight off bacterial infections and without them working properly, then those bacterial infections are more likely to occur and they're harder to clear up. So that might be some abscesses in the feet or white line disease, might be a tooth root abscess or a sinus infection. So um, it definitely increases susceptibility to those types of problems, um, particularly in the horses with advanced uh, PPID. And, and we really do like to talk about early a PPID and advanced PPID. So the advanced PPID is when you see all of the signs uh, that we're talking about and it really is at the more uh, severe end of the spectrum. Okay, so I have a question for Dr. Little that came in from Kristen in Rochester, Michigan. And she has a 23-year-old warm blood gelding, again, another older horse uh, who hasn't shed his winter coat or at least didn't until mid-August this year while every other horse let their coat loose back in May. 
this is the first time it's happened to him. Could this be a sign that, that he might be um, cushionoid? Well, it certainly could. She mentioned delayed shedding compared to her other horses, which is a, a very common uh, thing that we hear in early PPID. One of the earliest uh, clinical signs of PPID can also be what we uh, refer to as a very subtle change in hair coat. We call this uh, a regional hypertrichosis, which simply means that a specific area of the hair coat that may appear longer and lighter, maybe even bleached uh, in appearance compared to the surrounding hair. Uh, we've, we've historically referred to this uh, hair coat as hirsutism, but more recently we've moved toward the term hypertrichosis. When we see that classic woolly mammoth uh, Cushing's horse, when we see that generalized hypertrichosis that we refer to it as, this is really considered more advanced disease. Other things we see are the, the accumulation of fat deposits around the, the neck crest, the tail head, and above the eye. Those may also be signs uh, of early disease. One of the most common complaints that I hear is a, a subtle change in body conformation. An owner may know that their horse is losing their top line despite uh, staying in a, a regular exercise program. We can also see a shift in caloric demands, a horse that has always been an easy keeper, and now that horse is becoming more of a hard keeper, again, with no change in management. And if we certainly have been monitoring the horse, perhaps it's been a metabolic syndrome horse that I'm sure we'll touch on tonight, and we have an idea of where the insulin and glucose values have been over the years, we'll often see that the insulin values will get worse as a PPID or Cushing's comes in over time. One of the most common and concerning things we need to look for in early PPID is a horse that exhibits uh, foot soreness and chronic laminitis with no real explanation or reason. Chronic laminitis, in the absence of any known cause, should be a real red flag for the horse owner and the veterinarian. I did experience myself with my, my own horse, and we, we liken this essentially to a snowball effect. Once you realize that there's a significant problem, you're often uh, well behind um, the process of management, and it can become very difficult at that time. There's a variety of other things you may hear from subtle changes in behavior. You may have uh, the horse that becomes depressed or lethargic. Um, some owners will know that the horse sweats abnormally or, as uh, Dr. Frank alluded to, suffers from recurrent infections over time. And those things tend to be uh, more advanced uh, problems. The take-home message is that the signs that we see in, in early PPID are quite variable and subtle. So it's important that if you notice anything abnormal going on with your horse, have a discussion with your veterinarian, even though it may not seem that serious at the time. Delayed shedding, regional hypertrichosis, changes in body conformation, and chronic laminitis or foot soreness should be red flags to really screen for uh, Cushing's disease. So, Dr. Little, how long can a horse exhibit clinical signs before an owner or a, a barn manager might notice that this is going on? Can it sneak past us for a little bit, or is it pretty clear that the horse isn't doing well? 
Well, that's an interesting question, and certainly it can sneak past you. Um, right now, I think we need to be looking much earlier uh, than in the mid-20s or so for horses with Cushing's disease. A few years ago, a grading system, uh, interestingly, was developed for pituitary uh, disease on histopath or pathology, and the pituitary was graded at grades one through five, uh, grade one being normal, grade five being a pituitary that's very advanced in disease. With our current diagnostic test, I think we're doing a good job at detecting uh, very advanced disease, so grade five pituitary changes, and also some grade four pituitary changes, but we're not doing a good job at really detecting mild to moderate disease. I think that maybe will change in the future as we develop a better diagnostic test, but this disease is very similar to Parkinson's and Alzheimer's in people. It's very slow, insidious onset, and uh, often by the time clinical signs are noticed, uh, the disease has progressed uh, significantly. It's, it's just very hard to set uh, diagnostic test reference ranges and pick up on these changes as the disease is so slow in onset. Okay. And we have a live question coming in that's a follow-up to what you've just shared, Dr. Little. It's from Kathy in Indianapolis, and she has a 29-year-old mare who's been diagnosed with Cushing's and is being treated with a per- with pergolide and weight-building s- supplements. She wants to know if it's possible for her horse to regain the muscle tone and the body that she used to have. Yeah, I think that's a very common question that we get once owners opt for treatment of, of, of Cushing's with pergolide. It does take time for some of those uh, body confirmation changes to be restored to a semblance of normal. Um, I don't know how long she has been treating with pergolide or, or what formulation she's using or dosage for that matter but it will take uh, several months, usually around six months, you should notice a significant change in uh, uh, some uh, appearance of normalcy in muscle mass and change in hair coat. Certainly, as we'll talk about, uh, one of the earliest things that she should pick up on is a, a change in attitude and behavior. But muscle mass and really hair coat changes tend to be a lot slower to resolve. So. Um, it's important that if she's been on the drug for just a, a couple of weeks, she give it more time to see those changes. She needs to be looking at probably weeks to several months to really appreciate those. Okay. Um, the next question is for Dr. Frank, and it came in from Elaine in Ohio. And Elaine wants to know what the difference is between Cushing's disease and insulin resistance, or is there a difference? Are the diseases hereditary, and then are they related to each other? Dr. Frank? Okay, well, this is a tough one as well. Um, So the way that we would look at uh, this situation at present um, is that we would see insulin resistance as as a hereditary problem in that we have a genetic predisposition towards insulin resistance. So there are some horses out there with the genetics that makes them become insulin resistant if they are put into situations where they become obese or are in situations where they're not exercised well, in situations where um, perhaps they're uh, on the the incorrect diet. So yes, I think there is a genetic um, basis to insulin resistance. The horse that's insulin resistant and goes through many years of being insulin resistant with obesity and all of the components of equine metabolic syndrome, then is I think at this point we can say predisposed to 
getting Cushing's, getting PPID. So the same horse then that was battling that problem of insulin resistance its whole life is then also more likely to develop PPID. And because of that, we can say that we'll see horses that um, are insulin resistant and have equine metabolic syndrome that then develop PPID as they get older. And they actually transition from having the obvious signs of equine metabolic syndrome into the obvious signs of having Cushing's disease. So since we see this relationship, there's a hereditary side to the insulin resistance and that then makes that animal more likely to develop Cushing's. And so just by following along on that thought, you get to the point where you're going to expect to see Cushing's in certain breeds of horse, certain lines of horse, just because of that relationship to the hereditary basis of insulin resistance. Okay. These are not the same. Uh, the insulin resistance is all, in all likelihood predetermined by the genetics of the animal and then influenced heavily by the way the horse is kept. And then the Cushing's is a disease that comes on later in life as we go through these changes, and it's really the relationship in terms of being predisposed. Okay. And so we have a question that's related for Dr. Little. It came in from Jan in Wisconsin, and she wants to know, uh, do overweight horses just have a greater risk of developing PPID? Sure, and, and Dr. Frank just touched on really the genetic basis for um, this particular question. This is a very hot area of veterinary research right now where we've tried to gain some agreement, and certainly there has been a lot of discussion on obesity as part of uh, equine metabolic syndrome where insulin resistance is a, a defining feature. Uh, many of the same breeds that are overrepresented in EMS uh, seem to pop up again when we do talk about uh, Cushing's disease. And as Dr. Dr. Frank alluded to, these horses that have a history of obesity or EMS do seem predisposed to develop a Cushing's over time. There are several different theories as to, to why that might be the case. Uh, some researchers feel that perhaps as obesity becomes chronic over several years, we have uh, oxidative damage, uh, the presence of free radicals, if you will, that uh, happens to our, our neurons, which may lead to uh, PPID. Uh, other theories are that chronic obesity begins to interfere with white blood cell function and perhaps overstimulate uh, the pituitary, which may lead to PPID. And then some additional theories include production of, of something called leptin uh, from our fat cells, which may also overstimulate hormone production from the pituitary. We just don't have the exact mechanism or link figured out, uh, but it does appear that as obesity does persist for a period of years and insulin resistance develops, the onset of uh, PPID or Cushing's is not far behind. But here's the caveat. There are some horses that are not obese and insulin resistant that develop PPID, uh, as well as some horses that remain obese with no issues at all. I've got one that's, that's quite obese and he's never had a single problem. Uh, so I do think genetics play a role. Uh, it's just not a clear-cut picture, but something researchers are really trying to work out uh, to this day to, to try to help us all manage these disorders. I think the best strategy we can adopt is to avoid obesity altogether. Uh, we know that obesity in people and pets is fraught with medical consequences like high blood pressure and diabetes and such, so we should really do our best to avoid obesity in horses for a variety of reasons, but namely to prevent laminitis. 
Okay. And Dr. Little, we have a follow-up question from our live audience, um, and it's Lila, who is in Australia, and she wants to know if regular exercise is good uh, and can prevent Cushing's. Yeah, and I think we do have that follow-up question, I think, scheduled tonight as well. But I, I believe that uh, any time that we can keep horses in regular work, that's a good thing because I think that with our current uh, management strategies where we're feeding grain twice a day, we're not exercising our horses as frequently as they need to be, um, these horses that may have a genetic uh, tendency to become obese, are the ones that will become obese with uh, the management strategies that, that we do practice. So I think that keeping horses in regular work, 20 minutes, five days a week at minimum, is a really good strategy to avoid obesity and perhaps even more uh, time devoted to exercise if you own uh, one of those breeds that does tend to uh, be overrepresented in uh, EMS or uh, obesity in general. Absolutely. Okay. And Dr. Frank, we have a question that came in from Joe in Paris, California. And Joe wants to know about her horse who she uh, terms a waterholic. He's a fjord who drinks an excessive amount and also seems to urinate, urinate excessively. Is it possible that he is showing clinical signs of Cushing's? Yes, uh, it's certainly possible. Uh, Cushing's uh, can cause horses to uh, urinate excessively and to drink excessively, and it's one of the consequences of those high amounts of hormones coming from the pituitary gland. So I would definitely recommend testing the horse for Cushing's uh, to see if that's the cause of this problem. Okay. And so we're going to move into some questions about diagnosing uh, Cushing's. We have a question from Lori in, in Boise, Idaho. And Dr. Little, I'm going to send this over to you. Uh, she, Lori is asking, what is the best way to confirm diagnosis? And we also have a question from Mary in Pennsylvania. And she said that she's heard that spring is the best time to test your horse. Uh, do you have a response for these ladies? Well, I do, and I think that there's a lot of information here that's maybe changed from information we've had uh, for several years. Uh, the Equine Endocrinology Working Group, which is a group of uh, key researchers involved in Cushing's and EMS, and Dr. Frank is a member of this group, uh, came to the first agreement last year on certain clinical signs of Cushing's as well as the first agreement on diagnostic testing. Uh, many of the tests that we previously recommended in the past, like Dionor cortisol, for example, are no longer considered useful. What they did agree on uh, was Tier 1 and Tier 2 diagnostic tests. And Tier 1 tests are those that are first-line screening tests, if you will, for PPID. These Tier 1 tests consist of the endogenous ACTH test and also the overnight dexamethasone suppression test. The overnight dexamethasone suppression test has been referred to as the gold standard for many years, although this test has not proven any more reliable over time than ACTH, and, and we don't think this should, should be considered any more accurate than ACTH. There are also some perception issues with administering uh, dexamethasone, which is a steroid, to a horse uh, with possible uh, Cushing's disease. Uh, although this, this test has been performed very safely in, in hundreds of horses uh, in the literature. I do feel, however, that ACTH is probably an easier test to run and to follow up with. It does involve just one blood sample, and you don't have to administer uh, any steroid. 
You can improve uh, the sensitivity of ACTH by potentially taking uh, more than one sample at a time at, at a farm visit. And the neat thing about ACTH is that we now have seasonal reference ranges for this test, which makes this uh, ACTH test one we can perform all year long. That's a major new change. We don't have fall reference ranges for the dexamethasone suppression test. So Tier 1 tests are, again, the two tests that uh, should be done for an initial screening diagnosis of Cushing's. There is a, a Tier 2 test involving uh, ACTH measurement following TRH stem, but right now this test is, is not commercially available, and uh, some of our researchers think this may be very uh, sensitive uh, for detection of early disease. The good news is that we do now have a test we can run all year long, which is ACTH, and uh, as we get more data on additional tests in the future, we'll certainly uh, be, be sharing that with uh, uh, the veterinary industry. As far as the second question goes, we did used to avoid testing for PPID in the fall, uh, August through October, but this is a time when the pituitary becomes much more active. This is known as a seasonal rise, but recently, based on the work of uh, Andy Durham in the UK and also several others, we have changed that recommendation. Uh, we now use the fall of the year as the time when most difference is observed between normal horses and abnormal horses, or those with PPID. Both groups have increases in hormone levels in the fall, namely ACTH, but PPID horses have the most profound increase. So our reference ranges for both normal and abnormal will go up, uh, and our test should be interpreted accordingly during that time. So testing in the fall is most helpful now, uh, as with the seasonal rise occurring, we can possibly detect a horse that was negative on a screening ACTH in the spring, but rises just enough in the fall to become positive for uh, Cushing's or PPID. So fall is an ideal time to test, and that's another very significant change that uh, we'd like to share. Okay, and that's really great for people to know that. Um, we have a question that's coming in from our live audience. It's from Ingrid in Minnesota. And this is a question we received uh, over and over and over again during the registration process. And it's whether or not there are some breeds that are more prone to Cushing's than others. Uh, we talked a little bit about hereditary, um, the hereditary nature of this. But Dr. Frank, are there certain breeds that we see this more frequently in? I think if you look at the relationship between e EMS and, and PPID, you have to say that any horse that's predisposed to EMS is also predisposed to PPID. So we look at those easy keeper type breeds um, when we're talking about EMS. So we're talking about ponies and uh, and uh, Morgan's uh, Pasifinos. Uh, we'll see it in saddlebreds. We'll see it in Arabians. So um, really... Uh, Across uh, different breeds, we can see even certain genetic lines where the animals are more prone to accumulate weight and become obese. So if there's a history of that in, uh, with the horse, then that makes it more likely that the animal's going to develop uh, PPID. So, so those main breeds, you'll see that, uh, that uh, higher number of those animals having PPID. Uh, as Dr. Little pointed out, it doesn't mean that those are the only horses that develop PPID, but we certainly see a greater risk in those animals. Okay. And so I just want to let everyone know that we're about at the halfway 
Mark for our presentation tonight, and we're going to move into some treatment and management type questions. Michelle, could could I just uh, interject before we leave diagnosis, just to, yes. to make a recommendation, and that is that the currently available tier one tests that Dr. Little talked about, those tests will pick up uh, the disease when it's got to the moderate stage and, and more severe. So. The real challenge is when we're dealing with the very earliest stages of PPID and how to get the diagnosis at that stage. So a very strong recommendation is that um, as owners are looking at their horses and suspecting that they may have uh, started with PPID, if a negative result comes back the first time and, and the signs just keep going, that the, they, they persist, then, then retest and keep retesting because as the horse gets older and as the disease advances, you will see that test result becoming positive in, in many cases just because of the limitations of the currently available test. The second tier test that Dr. Little mentioned, we hope will become more available. It is available at referral institutions and in some practices. And as it becomes more available, we think that will be a better test for picking up early disease. Okay. And then, so once we have them diagnosed with Cushing's, then it's time to start treating and managing them. And we have a question that came in from Kathy in Newburgh, Missouri, and she has a donkey and we at the horse love the donkey questions. Um, we have lots of readers out there and audience members on the website who are taking care of donkeys. Um, but Kathy's 18 year old donkey has um, been diagnosed with PPID and has been on a regimen of care for seven months and is responding well. However, he seems extra irritable. Uh, are the personality changes common with his condition and treatment, uh, Dr. Little? Sure. Uh, one of the things we hear frequently with horses uh, that have a PPID is the lights are on but no one's home. Uh, over time, this disease tends to make horses much more lethargic, much more docile as disease progresses. And what's interesting is that many times when we treat these horses, we hear that, you know, horses, ponies, and I include donkeys, become much more energetic and perhaps ornery, uh, when in reality we're probably restoring the normal function of the pituitary that the horse, pony, or donkey lost a long time ago, perhaps years ago. I think in some cases when folks are really seeing or what they're really seeing is a normal behavior that was perhaps dimmed uh, several years ago with the onset of the disease. A lot of the animals that have advanced uh, PPID, as I mentioned, are very gentle, sweet personalities. Uh, they make great babysitters, but uh, unfortunately some owners uh, really like their animals with PPID a bit better than they do uh, after treatment. Another issue... Uh, that we see is when we remove some of the excess uh, feel-good hormones, if you will, uh, with treatment that do occur in PPID, some of these horses may start to feel some of the age-related aches and pains that have been masked uh, over time with PPID. So I would make sure that we, we, we rule out any type of uh, age-related or joint pain uh, or any pain from any other source that might be causing a behavioral change. Uh, she asked what else she can do, and I would encourage her to provide a, uh, an engaged environment, make sure that uh, uh, 
the donkey's eating well on an appropriate nutritional plan. With some of the management changes that we make, particularly in donkeys, we tend to take them off pasture and perhaps isolate them from their companions. So it might be a good idea to try to provide more activity for a donkey and perhaps a companion might help. But if this behavior persists, uh, talk to her veterinarian, uh, Talk about the possibility of perhaps reducing the dose of drug in the case it might be causing a behavioral change, keeping in mind that this might not be possible to control the other clinical signs of PPID. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Little. Uh, Dr. Frank, I have a question that has come in from our live audience. It's from Shara in San Diego, and I'm, I'm hoping you can help us out with this one. She wants to know what the best process is for caring for, the, for hoof problems associated with Cushing's uh, do you have any suggestions that you make to owners? Yes, I mean, I think the the biggest part of this is providing regular and expert farrier care. Um, that these are not the horses to to let them go out too long between trims. They're not the type of horses to uh, be taking them uh, over surfaces that are going to cause some damage to those feet. They really are horses that need to be well-maintained as far as their foot care. All horses need this, but particularly the case with horses with PPID. We also will definitely see that um, in horses with advanced PPID, they're more susceptible to infections like uh, foot abscesses and white line disease, cracks that become infected in the foot and so on. So very good uh, management of the environment, trying to provide horses with uh, dry areas to get out of the mud, out of the wet, if that's causing a problem with that type of cracking and, and hoof abscesses. As you get the disease under control, that goes down in likelihood, but still good farrier care is highly recommended. Thank you. Um, so I have a question that has come in uh, from Thoria, who's in the sedan. And Thoria wants to know, Dr. Little, what other methods are there for proper treatment of equine Cushing's disease? Well, I think the best way to approach treatment of Cushing's is through what we term a whole horse approach. Uh, this involves attention to many different factors, uh, drug therapy with pergolide, uh, hoof care with attention to laminitis, if that is present, uh, nutrition with attention to insulin status, are they insulin resistant or not, uh, putting the horse on a good deworming program, providing adequate water, body clipping if needed, and then exercise if that's possible. It's a combination of factors, I think, that leads to success with management of these horses. Uh, as far as drug therapy goes, Pergolide uh, under brand name Persin would be the first line of drug treatment, but for horses that do not respond uh, at higher doses, other drugs such as citrohepidine uh, may be added as well. Uh, you may see other drugs mentioned online and so forth, but um, Pergolide is the drug that seems to offer the best response with Cushing's. The important point I want to make is it's not to simply stop at drug therapy. You have to stay on top of all these issues that can adversely affect uh, the PPID horse. I strongly recommend uh, twice a year wellness exams uh, to stay on top of any issues that are developing. Uh, uh, Dr. Frank mentioned white line disease and subsolar abscesses. 
those things could indicate that the disease is worsening. It's important to partner, as he said, with a good farrier familiar with managing laminitis. Make sure your horse has regular dental exams by a veterinarian and a proper nutritional plan. Uh, certainly, drug therapy is a cornerstone of treatment of pushing that does not encompass the entire strategy that we need to take with these horses. You do have to manage the entire horse and all of these issues that we've already talked about tonight. Okay. Um, Dr. Little, we have another question from Vanita in Antelope, California, and she would like to know why you can't remove the Cushing's related tumor from the horses uh, like you do in humans. Do you have a response for her? Sure. I think the simplest answer to her question is practicality. Uh, the pituitary is located at the base of the brain. On, on the human side, with pituitary or adrenal tumors in Cushing's, a surgery is a mainstay of treatment, but this is certainly uh, still fraught with complications and obviously expense. This has not been looked at at horses uh, because it does involve, you know, lying a 1,000-pound horse down for surgery, the potential need for intensive aftercare, and certainly the potential for complications to occur, and you can imagine what immense expense would be involved in that. We're just now getting to where we can image the pituitary on CT scans, but this isn't certainly a routine thing that, w that we normally do. Uh, when you think about how PPID occurs, this is a disorder which occurs also due to loss of dopamine-secreting neurons that innervate the pituitary. So the best way to address this is to restore the activity of dopamine, and this is done medically, not surgically. Also, not every horse with Cushing's has a very defined pituitary lesion that would be visible and that possibly could be removed. Even if it could be, this would not be an easy surgery and with a very unproven outcome. We also need the pituitary for other functions in the body. We're just not to the point where we can practically address this disease surgically, and I'm not sure that we will ever get to that point in the horse. Okay. Well, Dr. Frank, we have a question from Susan in Ontario, and Susan wants to know if feeding Chasberry on a daily basis will help return her horse to norm a normal state. Uh, Dr. Frank? Yes, Chessbury um, has been looked at in one study that was uh, performed by the University of Pennsylvania. And in that study where they compared the effects of Chasberry with pergolide, um, the Chasberry did not prove to be as effective. In fact, did not have the effect that uh, um, was desired. Having said that, there have been a number of reports from various uh, individuals saying that they uh, see an improvement in their horse when they give Chasberry. And so, you know, there is always um, a gray area that we have to work within when we're looking at something like Chasberry as to whether it might help certain horses but not others. But what I am sure about is that Chasberry is not a substitute for pergolide. As an addition, as another uh, part of what we might do to treat a horse with Cushing's, I think Chasberry can be considered. But if uh, it's being substituted for pergolide, um, that is not, uh, in my mind, a, a good recommendation because the pergolide drug is clearly effective in controlling this condition, and that is the drug that we should turn to first uh, to get this disorder under control. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Frank. Dr. Little, we've had a question come in from the live audience, which is a 
a follow-up to our earlier discussion about uh, the seasonal impacts of on PPID. Uh, Angie in West Virginia has been caring for a pony that's been diagnosed with PPID, and in the last week or two, she's noticed that the mare is getting worse. Could that be related to the change of the season and it being fall? I think it certainly could. I, we see a lot of the horses that uh, do tend to get worse in the fall of the year, and so I would, uh, if you know, I would ask the the questions as far as what type of treatment is the pony on, what dose. Perhaps this may be a situation where we do need to increase the dose. Um, I think that certainly uh, testing this time of year and just seeing where the pony would be at on ACTH would be a, a rational thing to do to get an idea of of how controlled or not the pony may be. Uh, so I think that in order to really make the best recommendation, that would be where we would need to start um, in order to see if the pony needs to go up as far as a pergolide dose or um, or not. Okay. And Dr. Frank, we have a follow-up question about diagnosis, uh, and this question is from Vicki in Toronto, and she wants to know if the horse is showing classic or cl classic clinical signs of this disease, is it really necessary to go about doing lab testing, and can she just go ahead and treat instead? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think our emphasis really should be on diagnosing this condition in its earliest stages. So those are the horses that we really need to identify and get them uh, under control before we start to see problems like laminitis and, and the other complications we see with Cushing's. The horse that's got obvious clinical signs, I think at that point you don't need per se a, a lab test to confirm the diagnosis. However, I also think that one problem that we're facing uh, in the management of Cushing's is that we're sometimes not uh, increasing the treatment to a level that gets the disease really under control. So by using the lab results, we can get an idea of severity and then also we can get an idea of how responsive the patient is to treatment. If the patient isn't very responsive, we know we need to increase the dosage and then we would take that in addition to the clinical response and make an assessment as to whether we've got the dosage right or we need to go up further. So it's absolutely the case that a very advanced uh, horse with Cushing's, the diagnosis is really already made, but I think there's additional benefits to checking that lab work, doing the ACTH measurement, and seeing the actual status of the animal. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Frank. Oh, we have a question from Kimberly in Ontario, and it's for Dr. Little. Uh, Kimberly has a high-performance show horse that was just diagnosed, and she wants to know if her horse will return to his same level of athleticism. Will he be able to compete again? Yeah, that's a hard question to be able to to answer. But um, I think my recommendation to Kimberly would be don't don't give up on on showing your horse. There's different things that you can do uh, to manage these horses from a nutritional aspect, um, uh, controlling the sugar and starches in the feed, trying to minimize uh, glycemic responses from feed, and trying to provide her horse with enough energy uh, and calories to perform. Uh, and, and, and not make any insulin issue that the horse may have uh, worse. So there's, there are a lot of things that we can do there uh, that, that may help the horse. I, I recommend that if a horse is recovering from particularly a bout of laminitis, 
um, focusing on really some of those commercially available low starch, low carbohydrate feeds, perhaps adding a corn oil, rice bran, uh, cocoa soy oil has been uh, one that's come into favor molasses-free beet pulp for added fat and calories and energy. Um, I think with with nutrition, it plays such an important role in getting these horses back um, into work, but we also have to address uh, proper hoof care, as Dr. Frank already alluded to, in the horses previously suffered an episode of laminitis. So it's very important that she have all of her ducks in a row and have, have a good team of people on board to manage a horse so he has the optimal uh, potential in returning to her his previous uh, level of performance. Okay, thank you, Dr. Little. And we are getting tons of live questions. So everyone out there, thank you for listening and sending in your questions. We're going to do our best to get through uh, some more of these. We have just under 15 minutes left. I have a question for Dr. Frank, and it came in from Joy in Indiana. And she wants to know, if pergolide is safe for horses, why was it removed from the market for humans? And that was several years ago when um, that became unavailable. Dr. Frank? Yes, uh, it was removed um, from the market uh, after a warning that was issued in relation to uh, uh, people that developed heart problems uh, after taking pergolide over a longer period of time and with a higher dose than what we would be using in horses. And, you know, really over time, that um, finding was only found in some of the patients that were taking the medication. So it wasn't even across the board with every person who was on pergolide. What we know in horses is that we use a different dose. Uh, it has a different uh, pharmacokinetics in, in horses. And there really isn't any evidence um, in the veterinary literature that it causes any problems with the heart. And we've certainly looked for those problems. And there are horses that have been on pergolide for years and years. And they've uh, unfortunately passed away and they've gone to post-mortem and we've looked to see if we can see any of these signs and those signs aren't there. So based on what we have in horses, we really don't see any reason to be concerned about it. And I think this is just a classic example of where what we find in one species doesn't necessarily translate into another. So uh, um, really until we see any uh, issues arising in the veterinary literature, I, I think we can be comfortable with where we stand in terms of uh, pergolide use in horses. Okay. I'd also like to make one comment in regards to that in terms of the, the approved formulation of Persin. That was something that we did look at in the Persin safety study uh, when we uh, gave horses uh, high doses of the approved product to uh, see if they would experience any type of cardiac abnormality. They were screened by a uh, cardiac, uh, a board-certified cardiologist. Uh, uh, cardiac ultrasound exams were performed, and there were absolutely no abnormalities, even at those exaggerated doses in the safety study. So I think, as Dr. Frank said, the horse is just a different animal. Okay. And Dr. Little, we have another question about Percent. It came in from Kathy in Seattle. And Kathy wants to know why Percent is more expensive than what she was getting in the previously available compounded forms of pergolide. Do you have a, a response for that? Oh, sure, sure. I think this is a this is a kind of a multifactorial response, and I'll start off by saying that the cost of active ingredient, uh, which is our drug, pergolide, 
consistent validation of every aspect of the manufacturing and packaging, even down to the plumbing and the facilities that it's packaged in and manufactured in, and submission for FDA approval with proof of efficacy, stability, and potency does absolutely establish a minimum cost to bring the product to the market. It has taken years to bring Percent to the market and answer a need that we were asked for. Uh, vets and horse owners uh, wanted a formulation that they could depend on. Uh, with Percent, you do have ongoing stability testing. You have monitoring of the safety and efficacy of this drug, which continues as long as the product is on the market. This offers something of value that you're not assured of with any of the compounded uh, products that have been on the market historically. We do not establish a recommended price for the product, and we do discourage price gouging. This is a once-daily treatment for horses with a chronic disease, and we certainly recognize that. But compounded perlite is not an inexpensive treatment if it fails to control clinical signs like laminitis and infections that, that warrant management. Prescind, I think, offers you the best chance of controlling the clinical signs of disease, and that's really what we want to do in these particular courses. You also, and I want to reiterate this, get the backing of a team of people at the manufacturer, which is BI, and that's a safety net that you and your vet don't get with compounded perlite. One other final point I might quickly make uh, from Dr. Phil Johnson, he was recently quoted actually on the horse, is that smaller quantities of Prescind are doing as much or more than larger doses of compounded alternatives that have been used. So in some situations, this may be use of Prescind more cost-effective for some clients, not less cost-effective. The goal of this product is to provide better control of clinical signs over time, which is ultimately best for your horse, and it's certainly the, the best idea for mine as well. Okay. And so uh, we are getting close to being out of time, so I want to skip ahead and to make sure that we cover some diet-related questions because it's really important in the management of these horses. Uh, Dr. Little Julie from Houston, Te Texas, wants to know what is the best way to feed her horse both forage and, um, and grains to manage PPID. What suggestions do you have for her? Yeah, I think that there's there's a lot of issues there. There there's there's things that we have to consider. First off, horses with with Cushing's are in two different groups. Those are those horses that are in an acceptable body condition and that they need to maintain their weight. And then two, those horses that because of the chronic loss of muscle mass that may occur or perhaps they have dental issues, need to gain weight. We also must consider the influence status of the horse, and she doesn't, she doesn't tell us information on her particular situation, but is the horse insulin resistant or not? In those horses that are in acceptable body condition with a normal insulin response, it's important to feed them according to ideal body weight and body condition. Don't let them get too thin and don't let them get too fat, and then feed them what they can and want to eat. Many of these horses do well with a mixed grass hay. Uh, they may need a senior feed uh, and a good vitamin mineral supplement or a ration balancer if they're just on a hay diet uh, is a great idea. Other Cushing's horses need to gain weight, so these horses need more calories, and we can provide this with some of our 
available senior feeds and add corn oil, beet pulp, um, flaxseed oil, or cocoya. In the case of insulin resistance, where we have a lean horse that needs more calories, and this is the most difficult scenario, we need to put more weight on without making the insulin resistance worse. And so that's when we need to jump through some hoops, looking at hay analysis, trying to aim for a low-carbohydrate or NSC content of around 10%. We want to try to feed one of the commercially available low-carb, low-starch feeds. We also have to consider access to pasture and limit access to pasture until our insulin levels are controlled. Pasture is like a... Uh, endless dessert buffet for a horse. It's just uh, filled with, with tons of sugar, and we do have to restrict that. There are some horses that are severely insulin resistant that may have to be permanently taken off pasture. Um, if we can get the insulin resistance under control, perhaps they can return to pasture over time. I also think vitamin E is a good thing to supplement uh, for any Cushing's horse, uh, just in general, because it's an antioxidant. Not every Cushing's horse has an issue with insulin resistance, and we really need to work that out in order to make the best nutritional recommendations because many uh, older you know, Cushing's horses are being calorie-restricted and managed as if they are insulin-resistant when, in fact, they are not. So I think any horse that undergoes testing for Cushing's should simultaneously be, simultaneously be evaluated for their insulin sensitivity so we can make the best nutritional recommendation possible. Okay. Dr. Frank, I have a follow-up question and that's related uh, from Kelly in Reno, Nevada. And Kelly has a 20-something uh, Cushing's Mustang, uh, or Mustang with Cushing's, who is currently being treated with Prescend. And she wants to know if it's okay to turn her horse out on pasture for maybe just an hour a day. You know, lots of times we have these horses and we have them on dry lot and we sure want to see them happy out there grazing. Is that okay for her to do? Okay, so just I'd like to step back from just, for just a second and say that uh, what's really important uh, as we discuss diet is to know the situation with each individual horse. And so really the best approach is to actually be looking at the insulin situation in the animal. And that can be as simple as taking a blood test and looking at the glucose and insulin concentrations, or we're now developing a test which is really straightforward in which we give a little bit of corn syrup and we look at the response to that corn syrup. By looking at that response, we can see how that horse is going to respond to the sugars that it might get in grass, the sugars it might get in grain, the sugars it might get in hay. By getting that information, we can make informed decisions on what we can recommend in terms of diet. So as Dr. Little said, there are some Cushing's horses that have problems with their insulin. There are some Cushing's horses that do not. If we take two examples, one is a pony that has had insulin problems its whole life, probably due to genetics. It's battled them its whole life, and when it has Cushing's at the age of 25, it's still battling them, and that actually could make it worse. That animal, we need to know what its insulin uh, concentrations are, and we need to know what its responses will be because we're going to have to make important decisions about diet. 
Let's take another horse. It's a thoroughbred. It's now 25, 30 years of age, and it's got Cushing's, but it hasn't battled insulin resistance its whole life and doesn't have insulin resistance today. That animal, once we check it and work out that its insulin's okay, it can have a different kind of dietary recommendation. So the particular horse that we're talking about, I would say check the insulin, check it as a resting measure, or even better, check it after we've done this corn syrup test. Then you'll know whether it's safe to go out. If it is, then getting the horse out on pasture where it can move around with a grazing muzzle for an hour, twice a day is absolutely fine. It may even be possible just to leave the horse out the whole day, all the time. And many older horses do better in that environment. So the key message here is get a read on the insulin situation and then make your decisions. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Frank. We have another question. I'd like uh, to see if you have an answer for us, Dr. Frank, and it's coming from our live audience. Faye in California has a thoroughbred who has been doing very well and hasn't been showing any uh, hoof problems. Is laminitis an absolute? Will they get laminitis 100% of the time? That's a great question, and the answer to that is no. It is not an absolute. It is not 100% of the time. And I would actually put forth at this point that the laminitis is much more tied to the insulin resistance. So the animal that's had that insulin resistance problem its whole life, maybe it's got worse when it's got Cushing's, that's the horse that we need to be worried about with laminitis. So um, no, we cannot assume that all horses that have Cushing's get laminitis. I think we can assume that horses with advanced Cushing's have poorer quality feet because of all the other problems that Cushing's causes, but not true laminitis in all cases. And in fact, if you look at it, it's actually interesting. The ones with laminitis are the ones we're going to see more of because it's such an obvious sign. When the horse is crippled by laminitis, we start looking for reasons why. But there's other horses out there that are walking around without laminitis that have Cushing's. Okay. And so we are, unfortunately, out of time tonight. I want to, before we go, because we had a lot more questions that we did want to get to, but we've covered a lot of ground in the last hour also. I wanted to ask the doctors if you have some closing things that you'd like to share that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Uh, Dr. Little, was there anything that you really wanted people to know that we didn't get to this evening? Well, I just think it's important for owners to recognize that this management of the horse with Cushing's is a process. There's not one particular management scheme that works for every horse in every situation. Your horse is unique, and it will, you know, warrant a very specific management strategy in terms of nutrition, hoof care, knowing where we are on insulin, drug therapy with Resin or Pergolide. So I think that just taking a step back and realizing that, you know, this is a learning process and uh, it's certainly a very individualized experience uh, in terms of managing any case of Cushing's disease. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Little. Dr. Frank? Yes. I mean, I'd like to say that, you know, we've made some great strides in this area. Uh, and I think there's some good news in, in, in this discussion of Cushing's, and that is that we know better how to pick up on it when it's first starting. We know how be better to uh, 
to manage the condition. I think that for owners of horses as they get older, I think it's nice to know that we've got a better handle on this condition and we can do more for these animals. Older horses can remain active, we can ride them, we can enjoy them, they're part of our family and there's so much we can do now that we couldn't do 10 or 20 years ago. So for me with our 25 year old pony who's being ridden around by my eight year old son, it's nice to look out the window and know that I've got him under control, that I'm on, the, on this uh, disease process and I'm doing my best to keep it uh, manageable so that the horse can go on and live and continue to be part of the family. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Frank. Uh, just in closing, I want to tell everyone out there listening, uh, thank you for tuning in. Good luck managing your horses. Hopefully we've provided you some information that's going to help you out. Uh, thank you so much to Dr. Frank and Dr. Little for all of your expertise tonight, and thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you to our sponsor, Bo Ringer Ingelheim, for uh, making this event available for all of us. If you're out there and you'd like to listen again, you'll find an archive on thehorse.com uh, in our Ask the Vet Live section. We also have thousands of articles and videos. Many of them are about Cushing's. So get on there, do a search, uh, and find more information. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, doctors, and good night. <laughs>